Hey everyone, on this episode of the Brave Rider Podcast, we're kicking off the school year by revisiting one of our favorite episodes. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Brave Rider Podcast. I'm Julie Bogart, your host. Hello, friends. Today, it's just you, me, and your earbuds. We're going to talk about what I consider to be the Bermuda Triangle of Education. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) I get this question, some version of this question, almost every day in direct messages in Instagram. And I know that our helpline for Brave Writer gets a version of this question every day as well. I thought, it's time to tackle it. Let's pull it out of the closet and put it out in plain sight for everyone. The reason that I'm calling this question the Bermuda Triangle of Education is because it's where parents get lost and it has three characteristics. Are you ready? Let's get started. So here's a version of the question that sends parents into this Bermuda Triangle. Here's what it is. So I have a child and I'm trying to teach that child to read. And I want that child to love reading, and I really want them to read a lot. There's some version of that question that I get on the regular. Uh, The first part is oriented towards just learning the skill. I want my child to learn to keep their room clean. I want my child to learn to get ready in the morning before school starts without my help. I want my child to learn fill in the blank, to take care of the dog, to brush their teeth, whatever it is. That's sort of the first corner on the triangle. But what's funny is that our kids know that there are two more secret agendas you have when you're teaching them to learn something. They may not be able to verbalize it, but their resistance proves it. So let me explain. When you want your child to learn how to do something, They know that you don't simply value them knowing that skill and filing it in their mental file folder for a time they deem it's necessary to use that skill. I'll give you an example. Back when I was about four or five years old, my mother taught me how to make my bed. I had been watching her make beds every day. I would get out of bed, eat breakfast. She would make her bed, my brother's bed, and then my bed. And so one morning, in an eager burst of enthusiasm, I said to my mother, can you show me how to make my bed? Back then, we had these, um, these not comforters, but bedspreads, where you had to tuck in the bedspread underneath the pillow a little bit. So it felt a little bit challenging. And I was very young and didn't know how to do it. So my mother came in and she showed me how to fold it correctly, how to put the pillow on top, and how to fold the top of the bedspread over the pillow to make it appear beautiful. And I was completely thrilled that I knew how. What came next? Once she taught me how, do you think she said, I'm so glad that you now know how and walked out and then the next day came in and made the bed again for me? On the contrary, the very next day, my mother said, well, now that you know how to make the bed, it's your responsibility to make it every day for the rest of your life, (laughs) which I'm sure seemed like a completely reasonable idea coming from an adult. 
But the reason I remember this interaction with my very loving and dear mother is that I had the deepest sinking pit in my chest after she told me it was now my job to make my bed every day for the rest of my life. I had this sense that all I had really wanted was to peek behind the curtain of the magic of bed making. Like, what is this amazing trick that mothers use to make the bed look beautiful that I don't know? Oh, good. You showed me how the trick works. Now I want to go back to my not responsible to make beds every day of my life, life. I want to just know the trick and do it on the days I feel like it. Not Well, now that I know how, I'm required to live up to this new moral code about bed making for every day for the rest of my life. All that to say, your kids are on to you. They know that you have two other secret agendas when you recommend that they learn how to do something. The resistance that they often demonstrate is related to those two other agendas. So they may be curious enough to learn something. But that's not enough for you. You know that. Your secret agenda is not only that they learn it, but that they do it. And not only that they do it, but that they love doing it, or at least demonstrate some level of cheerfulness or joy doing the thing. We're not really content with a kid who knows how to do the math worksheet. We want them to follow through without being prompted. And we want them to show a certain pride and joy in having done the work. When those three things are not there, parents get itchy. They get a little annoyed. They get worried. They send me messages. I have a child who reads. She knows how, but she doesn't love it. Or I have a child who knows how to read, won't read any books, and I'm worried they'll never develop a love of reading. Do you see the Bermuda Triangle? And we get lost in it so easily. It's like our plane just goes down in the middle. The child has learned to do the thing and we expect that they'll do it and love it every day now for the rest of their lives without any variation in mood or execution or follow through. It's exhausting. And the worst part is, as a parent, we feel a triangle of our own. We feel like we should know how to teach the thing so that we're effective, that our child actually learns. Whatever the thing is, we're supposed to automatically have those skills, whether or not we've ever trained for it, thought about it, prepared for it, right? Whether it's homeschooling or chores or playing soccer, doesn't matter what it is. We're supposed to know how to teach our kids to be civilized human beings simply because we have children. And then... We are expected to follow through on our best intentions, show them how to make the cookies, teach them how to tie their shoes, and we're supposed to do it consistently. I remember there was a moment where none of my kids knew how to read an analog clock because we had digital clocks all over the house. And one day it occurred to me in a wave of guilt that I had never thought about teaching them to read a traditional clock. So did I go to them with joy and energy to teach them? No, I came in with this huge baggage of guilt and shame that I had let it go on so long. And I had this urgency to my teaching because I needed them to learn quickly before any of my peer group discovered that my kids didn't know how to read an analog clock, right? Like I had this 
shame controlling me, this belief that all other parents knew that they should have done it by now and had successfully done it. And I had completely forgotten that it was a skill my child needed. So we've got first, the skill set that we should know how to teach. Second, the follow through that will do it at the appropriate time in the appropriate ways, as long as it takes till we're successful. And then the third part of it is that we shouldn't be worried. We should do it with ease, with joy, without anxiety, shame, or blaming ourselves. It's our own Bermuda Triangle of teaching. So we have two things going on. We have the triangle of learning, doing, and loving that we impose on our children. And then we have an invisible to ourselves one, controlling how we do it, teaching, follow through, and worry. And when you layer these on top of each other, no wonder our planes go down. (laughs) No wonder we have self-esteem crises because we are so conditioned to believe that the learning and teaching experience between parent and child should be seamless, without any bumps, without any weather, right? Anything that's causing our plane to wobble, we see any of those signs as evidence of failure, not being good at our job, not being great parents, not being great home educators, not being great school teachers. So what I'm here to discuss today is how to fly your plane through those Bermuda Triangles. And first up, we're going to talk about this three-part expectation that you've created for your children that they have picked up just invisibly by living around you, right? And that, that triangle is this. The moment that you offer to teach your child something or you suggest that it's time to learn, they know there is a back-end commitment you're about to exact from them that they will now have to do the thing that they just learned and they're going to have to do it with some level of joy to prove to you that you did a good job of teaching, (laughs) that they value the thing, that it's not just performing for the sake of school or because you're a good parent, but because they need to demonstrate to you that they themselves have now become a fully sort of actualized learner. Math matters to me. Reading is now my own possession. Learning to care for the dog has become a part of my sense of operational responsibility, and I'm glad to do it. That's the secret wish of parents. So how do we fix this? Because our kids know that if they show too much joy, you might ask them to do it again when they secretly don't want to yet. So let's take this three-part dilemma. Um, and examine each of its features. So let's start with learning. Parents know the world. They have more experience than children. My mother knew that someday I was going to need to make a bed and I was going to need to understand how to maintain basic order in my living space. So in her mind, there would be those days when she would show me those tasks. I would master them and then I would do them And because I did them well, I would experience joy. I would experience what she experiences, which is a lot of peace when her house and her home are in order. But I am not my mother. Yes, I like to know how to do things. I like to understand the skill set necessary to master my domain, (laughs) my home. 
but I don't get the same level of pleasure out of a well-ordered space that she does. And in fact, I need opportunities to not keep my house in order to feel good, to feel okay. I live alone currently and I do make my bed every day. That one really has stuck. But you know what I don't do? I don't hang up my clothes after I wear them at the end of a day. I do it once a week on the weekend. So I end up with a pile of clothing that I've worn for the week next to my bed. Why? Because I get a lot of pleasure out of not working hard at the end of the day. Putting away clothes doesn't give me pleasure at the end of the day. Do I know how to hang up my own clothes? Yes. Do I know how to sort them for a hamper? Absolutely. Do I understand that there is a whole category of people in the world who find it far more satisfying to put their clothes in the hamper and hang up their clothes before they go to bed so that they go to bed peacefully? Absolutely. But that woman is not me. I have developed my own system that matches what my needs are that gives me pleasure. So if we look at this triangle, of learning, doing, and joy, what we will see is I've learned the skills. I can do them on a format and basis that means good things for my life. And I have joy when I find out the rhythm that makes those skills valuable to me, not when I live up to somebody else's arbitrary expectations for what that looks like. So when we look at a child and we say, okay, This child needs to learn to read, and then I want this child to read, and then I want them to take joy in the reading. We want to take that apart for a moment and recognize that there is only one part of that group of three that is really under our ultimate control, and that is the teaching of the thing, the learning. It does help to have a parent facilitate or a teacher facilitate the learning of reading. But there is a rate of learning that is going to be personal to the child. And that rate of learning is going to contribute to whether or not they take pleasure in it and whether or not they take pleasure in it in the future. So you may be a big old bookworm who thinks there's nothing more pleasurable than curling up in a sectional and reading a big, thick novel start to finish. But that is not necessarily going to be your child's experience. Your child might learn to read and use reading primarily online because honestly, that is this generation's main source of reading. Do we want our child to learn how to curl up in the corner of a sectional and enjoy a big, thick novel? Absolutely. But that journey is going to look very different than it may have looked for you, particularly if you grew up reading before the internet era. You have an actual memory of what it's like to read a book and enjoy it and not be distracted by the world of media and social media and digital life. Stepping away just for a moment, I wanted to make Brave Writer fans aware that our spring-winter online writing class session opens for registration on December 6th at noon Eastern Standard Time. What that means is, if you know there's a class you want, make sure you set your calendar reminder and your alarm so that you will not miss the opening of registration. 
Our classes fill because they are so popular. Our entire fall season was full. We sold out nearly every seat. If you know what class you want, it behooves you to register early. So we highly recommend that. And just know that classes that start later in the semester, you know, March, April, May, they're less likely to fill up unless there is only one session of that class. But for the ones that are kicking off our semester in January and February and the beginning of March, you want to hop on those quickly. Here's some good news, though. We are hiring a slew of new instructors right now. And so we are adding a whole bunch of extra sessions. So our wish and hope is that everyone who wants a class will get a class during this semester. To learn more about our online class program, go to bravewriter.com slash online dash classes. That's bravewriter.com slash online dash classes. We'll put the link in the show notes. One last note, our Brave Learner Home members get to register an hour before the general public. If that's important to you, consider joining our membership community. Go to bravewriter.com slash special dash offer to learn more. All right, let's get back to learning how to get out of this Bermuda Triangle of education. So today, what I want us to look at then is this learning, doing, joy continuum. The learning needs to have breathing room. We cannot go from teaching a skill to the next day expecting execution every day without fail. Where my mother could have really supported me would have been to say, now that you know how, let's do it together for a while. Let's turn it into something fun. Let's put on different pillows. Let's see if we can do it against a timer, racing to see how quickly. Let's lift up the blanket together and shake it out before we put it on and make waves with the blanket. In other words, she could have turned the doing not into a chore, but into a joy before it became my responsibility. So often we move straight into this ethical, moral, puritanical version of the thing. We learn, we do, and then we have to find the joy. But what if we started with the joy as we're teaching, as the child's learning? If we notice them start to catch on, what can we do to accelerate the joy in the thing? So rather than teaching a child to read, having them read a bunch of Bob books or readers, and then we say, well, now it's time to love reading. Here's a big, thick book. And you have to read it 20 minutes a day because I want to make sure that you catch on to reading. What if reading is actually a pleasurable experience that is shared between child and parent for a while that's accompanied by lighting candles or eating treats? You know, my two go-tos, right? Or it's a family experience. We all dedicate 15 minutes a day to reading a book and we do it together in the living room with the lights on and everybody snuggled up. And when it's over that 15 minutes, we all talk about what we read. Rather than moving to duty, to follow through, to doing it because now it's an assignment, what if we take the learning and we go to celebration first? 
We go to loving first. What accelerates the doing is a sense of accomplishment or pleasure, not responsibility. I'm going to say that again. What accelerates the doing is pleasure, a sense of accomplishment, not responsibility. We will take on responsibilities if we know that they will lead to pleasure and joy or to satisfaction and peace and well-being or a sense of achievement. But we will not take on responsibility merely because we've learned how to do the thing and a parent says, okay, now you must do it every day, you know, without any complaints, which is really the holy grail of parenting, right? So we've looked at what we can do to help our kids move from learning to doing to pleasure. And what we did is we swapped, right? We put the pleasure before we have the expectation of consistent doing. So I want you to just reflect for a moment on your biggest challenge with the most resistant child and think about that. When we talk about writing in Brave Writer, for instance, we start with freedom in the writing and writing as a group and allowing for errors and giving our kids an incentive to write. We jot down their words for them and take pleasure in what they express. We do all that before we start expecting kids to write assignments, to get them done on a certain schedule, to edit their own work. So take that model and apply it to math or science or the chores that you want to assign your children. How do we help our children experience value in what they're learning so that they are more motivated to try again? Now, one of the pieces of advice I want to pass on is that we move very quickly from a child showing promise to assuming mastery. So let me give you an example. Like I shared earlier about making the bed, I was capable of doing the task once my mother showed me how, but I would not call that mastery. I would say that what happened is she successfully transferred the steps to me of what it takes to make a bed. But as a little tiny person of four or five, that still felt like a lot of steps and a big job. It was a heavy blanket. I had to fold it properly. There were steps involved that I had to remember. And it's very easy to forget as an adult that for a little child, they are still learning how to manage the sequence of the steps using their bodies functionally, right? They're just gaining mastery over those parts of living. And that is especially true with the things they're learning in school, whether it's math or writing or reading. So as you think about those skill sets, just because your child read successfully today doesn't mean they'll be able to muster the same coordination and energy tomorrow. It is so likely that your child will perform well one day on a math page and the next day look exhausted and less able. That's because the capacity for automaticity and automatic use of the skill has not been cultivated. You want to cultivate that before you have expectations. And so these are practice sessions, not holding your child accountable to a skill that they've already mastered. Think about that. You've taught your child to sound out a sentence, sound out words, and one day they do it really easily. It almost looks effortless. And then the next day, for whatever reason, they're tired, they're cranky, 
Uh, They see that this challenge is in front of them and they remember how hard they worked yesterday. And suddenly they don't have the same spirit or energy or enthusiasm. We take that as a sign of laziness, a sign of not cooperating. We might assign resistance to them when really what they're communicating is a lack of energy or a little bit of insecurity that they've got to remember how to do the thing they did so easily yesterday and today it's not coming as easily. We want to put some space between the teaching and the repetition that creates fluency. So that means maybe you don't work on reading every day. It might mean working on reading for a half hour one day and 10 minutes the next day. It might mean asking your child how much support they need today compared to yesterday. We want to give our kids the opportunity to develop fluency before we start expecting them to carry the full responsibility of execution. And I think that's the missing ingredient a lot of times in classrooms and in homeschools. We are preoccupied with our other children. We're so relieved to see progress. We assume that because a child executed well on one day, they can carry that forward forever now. And when they don't, we start doubting our own skills as teachers. We think, well, what did I fail to do to communicate the responsibility to keep carrying out their mastery? But the truth is we have variable energy, variable skills, and day-to-day, we are still growing. So if you picture anything that's taken you time to learn over a period of years, you'll start to understand what I mean. Many of you took on cooking, perhaps for the first time as an adult, either for yourself or in your marriage or your partnership. And when you began, maybe you were like me. I had two meals I could prepare, salad and stir fry. One was vegetables over a stove and one was vegetables tossed in a bowl. And then I had to learn everything from scratch. And you know, there were some weeks where my cooking looked really successful and we loved the food. And then there were weeks where I didn't feel like doing it or what I produced didn't taste good or I overbalanced a spice or an herb thinking, oh, I understand how this one works now. And then I overdid it. I remember one time going camping with my husband and we salted the bacon (laughs) on, on the frying pan. And of course it ruined it. These are mistakes I made years after I had already been cooking, right? But I was in a new environment. I had memories of what salting was supposed to accomplish. You see what I'm saying? So as we are raising children, we want to remember that each skill that they develop will not automatically be easy to carry out and they won't love it. There will be flops and failures and moments where they go backwards. Maybe they're more interested in reading their online gaming discussion board than an actual chapter book. That's okay. It's just another kind of reading. It's not terrible that they don't love books this week. We can keep all of those things alive with a little more patience, where we bring in a little bit of joy, where we partner again, where we recognize that our children are going through varying levels of skill development at all times. So how does this work with the Bermuda Triangle of teaching versus learning? Well, first of all, you are probably teaching your child skills when you haven't learned how to teach those skills. I know that was true of me as a home educator. 
And so sometimes I had these expectations of my child that were completely unrealistic, partly because I only had one tool in the toolkit, right? I only knew one way to teach reading and it was phonics, or I only knew one way to explain a math process. And once I had explained it, if you didn't get it, I was out of good ideas. One way to lower the worry and the anxiety of what you're doing is to scale your own imagination to an appropriate level for this task, for this child, at this age. One of the ways to do that is research. Go ahead and look up other experts who've taught reading or have taught math. Get some other ideas. For heaven's sakes, they aren't all inborn. I didn't know how to teach my kids to read an analog clock. And when I first started, I just started talking at them. I just made it up, just made stuff up. And even while I was talking, I caught some insights into clocks. But then I remember, I need help. This isn't working for my child. They're not getting enough information from me. My 5, 10, 15 minute pointing out the numbers that didn't match the numbers, right? I say, well, at the one, it's five minutes. And my child is saying, well, then why isn't it a five? And I'm like, it's a great question. You're right. On the digital clock, it's a five. On the analog clock, it's a one. I don't know how to explain this to you to make it easier for you. The one's hand and the you know, the minutes hand and the hour, hours are, it's confusing. I can't even explain it on this podcast. So I went and I got a book from the library. This is before the internet days. And they had really great explanations that experts in telling time and teaching that, that idea to children had already come up with. And all I had to do was parrot their words and use their tools. And I was successful. So the teaching piece, don't assume that you already know how. And don't assume that if your child is resistant, it's because of a character flaw. It might just mean you're not good at teaching it yet. You haven't landed on the best method for helping your child understand. Go get more information. Go get more ideas. Do some research. So the first part is that teaching. The second part follow through is equally important. So I've noticed in all my years of working with homeschoolers that they have two reactions when they struggle to teach something. Either first, they give up and they just avoid that subject for a good long while, right? Like, okay, I'm struggling to teach reading. My child is resistant. She's crying. I'm crying. Okay, we'll just, we'll just not work on it for six months. And, you know, occasionally a six-month break actually is effective. The child matures a little bit. Everybody calms down. And when you revisit it, they're more ready to learn the information. But sometimes, no. Sometimes a six-month break just turns into a break that doesn't lead anywhere. And it's because you haven't gotten new tools, new resources, new ideas for how to teach it. So one of the first things we do is we just drop the follow-through because we collapse in the face of our child's resistance. The other way I've seen parents handle resistance, however, is to double down on follow-through. Now they're going to require it every day, and they're going to increase the amount of time that that child is required to work on this subject. 
They're going to get more serious about it. They're going to create a more rigorous schedule. They're not going to let it go. And now you are locked in a battle with your child picking up your intensity and your worry. And they're going to resist that because the pressure to perform, to relieve you of your worry is too big for children. Children shouldn't be responsible to make you feel good about your life or good about your success as a teacher. Your children's only responsibility is to try and report honestly about how they're doing so that they can get the support and help they deserve from you or another method or another curriculum. So during this follow-through phase, what you usually triangle in in your Bermuda Triangle of Teaching is worry. And that worry is an invisible monster in the room. It's a little bit of a bully. It's bullying you, telling you that you're failing, that you are not raising your children properly, that somehow all the other adults have it figured out except for you. And so you feel guilty and a little bit of shame, a little bit more anxiety about this task that's been assigned to you. Your children pick that up. They feel it and they resist it. They don't want that stuff. (laughs) They don't want to get infected by the germ of your anxiety. So they're going to act like they don't care about writing or reading is stupid or math is hard to get it off of them. Do you hear what I'm saying? When your child tells you they hate math, part of what they're saying is they hate the anxiety that shows up in you when you bring up math. Let me say that again. The resistance to math is often a resistance to your anxiety about math. Wow. Think about that for a minute. So you look at your child's bedroom. It is cluttered with clothes and toys and is a total mess. When you come in and say to your child, clean that up, part of their resistance isn't that they don't want a clean room. It's that they don't like the feeling of your anxiety being transferred to them. So they resist. They say, I love my room the way it is, hoping to neutralize your worry and anxiety. They're sort of like, if I can persuade my mom that a messy room is fine, she'll stop being anxious around me and we can go back to being happy together. What would happen instead if you came in and you were like, oh my gosh, this room, I can't even make it to the desk right now. I'm stepping on all your clothes. Can you help me? Let's do this. Let's start by just putting all the clothes in a corner so we can walk through this room together. And then let's decorate your desk so that all these beautiful things you want to look at every night are arranged nicely. I'm going to help you do it. What a different experience. Your child might be like, yeah, I don't like walking on my clothes either. And it would be so nice to arrange all those trinkets so that I can enjoy seeing them. And my mom wants to help me. That's going to be amazing. Do you see the shift? You bring an energy of joy or of cooperation or even a vision of what could be if we put in a little energy. I mean, honestly, that's how my mom got me interested in making the bed. She cast a vision for how pretty the room would look and how much fun it would be. And I was like, can I learn? And she's like, you certainly can, right? That's more what we're talking about here. So when you're about to tackle math, what if you started out even admitting the truth and you said something like, 
oh my gosh, I'm nervous to teach you fractions. It's so funny. Here I am, 35 years old, and I can't quite remember how to do them because to be honest, they're a little tricky. But here's what's really fun. We're going to learn it again together. You're going to help me. I'm going to help you. And let's see if we can come up with a magic trick for fractions. Now you've admitted that this is a learning journey. It's not about performing to prove to you that you taught them correctly. And it isn't about your anxiety that you might not have taught them fractions soon enough in their academic journey. It's actually a learning process. And you're going to enter it together in good faith with no expectations that this child now is going to do fractions a half hour a day forever. (laughs) Which is why our kids resist. They're like, oh my gosh, one more thing I learned and my mom's going to expect me to do it every day until I die. Do you hear what I'm saying? So let's go back over now the two Bermuda Triangles of Education. The first one is the Bermuda Triangle of Learning. We expect our children to learn. Then we expect them to execute on command because after all, they've learned it. And we expect them to love it, to do it with a cheery attitude, to want to do it again tomorrow. And if they don't, then we think there's a flaw in the child that we can require a better attitude or we can shame them into it or we can tell them that other children love it, right? So that's our danger zone. When we expect those three things to happen automatically, instantly, and because we said so. The Bermuda Triangle of Teaching is the notion that as an adult, you should already know how to teach the thing, that it's innate, that it should come to you naturally. And when your child resists or complains or doesn't get it, it's on them. Because as an adult, whatever you offered should be adequate. It should already have succeeded. The second piece to that is when it doesn't succeed, you go to follow through. You either take a big long break because you're afraid to confront it and you shift your energy to something that was more successful, or you double down and make your child perform every single day where you turn it into a system because you're so afraid that you're going to get behind. And so as a result, Worry permeates like a cloud, like a big weather cloud over the teaching experience. And your children can feel it. It's like when you know a good rain or a good snow is coming, you feel it before you see it. And your kids pick that up, their little weather vein of your emotional condition. They pick it up and they resist or they try to talk you out of it because they don't want it to happen to them. They don't want to become worried or anxious or lose their self-esteem because you don't see them as successful. Those two Bermuda triangles make your plane go down, your relationship plane, the two of you flying somewhere beautiful together. So how do we land the plane? How do we get to that beautiful destination where your child has learned, they know how to follow through, and they enjoy what they learned? How do we get there? There are three things you can do. The first one is scale your imagination accurately to that child and that subject. And of course, that comes through research, figuring out how to teach a subject, 
but also research into who your child is and where they are right now. So let's use the analog clock as an example. Imagine that you suddenly realize, oh my goodness, my child can't read an analog clock. I want to teach that subject. The first place to start isn't, okay, I'm going to teach it. It's to figure out whether or not that value set, learning to read a clock, even has any relevance to your child currently. We have to start there. What value will a child get from that? How do we cast a vision for learning about an analog clock when a child has never seen one, mostly doesn't need to rely on it, doesn't really understand the value? So we don't start with teaching and we don't start with the outcome in mind. We start with what is the value of this subject and how can I convey that value to my child in a way that produces enthusiasm, not a sort of brain drain of, oh no, one more thing my mom thinks I have to learn that I don't care about. So we do some research to establish the value of that topic or that method or that activity with our child. The second thing we want to do is scale our imagination around the execution. Does that child have to learn it by tomorrow? Or is it something that can be taught along the way over a year or two period? How essential is this skill to the next thing this child needs to learn? You only know that through research. I know that I did a lot of looking through these sort of grade level tools and manuals online and in the library to kind of give me a sense of what a second grader might need to know or what other nine-year-olds are learning. It's hard as a homeschooler to know that stuff. You don't know it automatically. And there is a big range in nine-year-olds, right? And not every school teaches the same content at the same rate. But you can start to get a feel for it. Like maybe it's a good idea to have been exposed to fractions by fourth grade. Maybe it's a good idea to have started teaching phonics at ages six through eight. You can get a sense and take some of the worry and anxiety off of yourself by scaling the rate of learning to the student. Just do a little research. And then finally, you need to neutralize that anxiety and worry that you bring to the table with you. Worrying that your child will be a slob is not a good motivation for teaching them how to take care of their bedrooms. Worry that your child won't do well in public high school if you're homeschooling them now when they're only eight years old is not helpful to the eight-year-old. Again, you neutralize your worry with more information. Do good research. Hang out with people who've gone before you. Understand that a task can take time and recognize the immaturity of children. They grow their ability to sustain interest and practice over 18 years. They're not going to be able to be self-starting every day or to continue to show joy and enthusiasm if it's a real struggle to give their energy to whatever that task is. They need breaks. They need time off. They need the freedom to tell you the truth about how they feel. Give them that. Be their partner. Get out of this Bermuda Triangle. Put that relationship first. And I promise you, research and relationship can take you the whole way there. Thanks for joining me today. I wanted to give a shout out to the Brave Learner Home, which is our membership community where we provide you with professional development 
to be an effective educator, a compassionate parent, and an awesome adult. So much of what we do in there helps you get out of this Bermuda Triangle. And I found out last week that many of you who listen to this podcast or visit my Instagram or Twitter or Facebook accounts didn't even realize that we provide that kind of coaching to support you. In the month of November, in fact, we have Dr. Bill Sticksrude coming to speak to us about his book called What Can I Say? All to help you as a parent become that person who can scale your imagination to the needs of your child around learning. So if you are interested in being a part of that community, go to bravewriter.com slash special dash offer and discover what we have in that community that is there for you. We've got six coaches, a community discussion board, and an archive of over seven years worth of materials to help you have the tools you need to do this job. A reminder too, that Raising Critical Thinkers, my new book, is in pre-sales. And there are all kinds of pre-order bonuses to those who buy the book early, publication date, February 1st. We are also currently accepting launch team partners in our Facebook group. You can learn about all of that by going to RaisingCriticalThinkers.com. Thank you for the overwhelming and beautiful support of the launch of pre-sales. Couldn't do it without you. You guys are rock stars. Thanks for joining me today. This podcast is produced by Crate Media. I have support from team member Jeanette Hall. If you have time, please rate and review the podcast. I so appreciate it. Keep going. I'm rooting for you. This is Julie Bogart from Brave Writer. Brave Writer.